everybody, we are here today for a spoiler review of Marvel's latest. It is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 from James Gunn. I am one of your hosts, Noah Guzman, joined here today by none other than Brandon King. Brandon, say hello. I'm a creep. I'm He's a, a weirdo. That's going to sound so bad in the edit. I'm so sorry, everyone. Please give us like some auto-tune, Brandon. Do what you got to do. We are talking Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Uh, we have an upcoming episode where we will still provide to you a abridged version of our review, but we had to hurry up and get together and make sure we could talk all details with you. We know that you are hungry for some of this material, and we don't want to deprive your ears of all there is to dive into, especially when it comes to the wrap-up of what I consider to be one of the best trilogies that we've received in a while let alone it belongs to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So let's go ahead and begin. I'm going to go ahead and throw out the story details for what we're discussing here. This is the spoiler review. So if you've not seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, make your way to a theater and check that out. Just be warned, as we venture further, we are holding no regard for details involving story, involving deaths, involving resuscitations, resurrections, villains, fake-outs, everything. So Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, we have a story that is centering around Rocket, and he is incapacitated. We take a look at his memories while he's in this state where he's fighting for his life. And it really feels like a journey of Rocket's life flashing before his eyes. If you've seen the trailer, you're aware of the fact that there are the characters from his past that come in, not only his creator, but some of the creations that have existed around him when he was young. Young Rocket is so cute. And so we really get to know a lot of his trauma from his early childhood and how it really shaped him to become the fearsome, like engineer tinkerer that we have today. As Rocket is incapacitated, we have our guardians all gathering together to save him. We have to make sure that there's this bypass that they can do for a kill switch that exists inside Rocket. So we have a new team of guardians. We have Star-Lord returning along with Nebula, Mantis, Drax, and we have Jock version of Groot. I'm so happy now we have another evolution of our Groot character. Uh, as they escape their head, their HQ, which exists on nowhere, they leave to of the Guardians behind as well. Uh, we're familiar with the character Kraglin. He is the one who inherited the uh, whistle arrow from Yondu. And then we have one of my new favorite additions to the team. Her name is Cosmo. She's a telekinetic dog. And she is she is voiced by an, a wonderful actress. I'll, I'll quote her later. Um, but yes, we have new locations explored. We have an exciting new villain, uh, new members of the the gold people, I'm dropping their name now, Brandon. Do you know their the, name? The Sovereign. The Sovereign. We get to have uh, returning members of that species as well. But we have an exciting journey ahead to discuss. But for now, it's all about expectations, okay? We came in. Maybe you boycotted the trailers. Maybe you watched them. You saw Adam Warlock on there. You saw a screaming Peter Quill over a dying rocket. And you thought, what's going to happen to my team of Guardians? And not to mention the... The Grinch in the corner of the room. What the hell is going on with Gamora? Who is Gamora? And why is Gamora? <laughs> especially, especially in this third volume where we have just come off of 
her murder, her death at the hands of her father. This is the daughter of Thanos. And now that the Infinity Saga has ended, two out of three James Gunn's movies have really set up that big event. So what does he do now with the volume three? Brandon, I want to hear about your expectations going in. How did you feel um, the movie? How did you feel the teases in the trailer spoke to the movie overall? And were you satisfied sitting in the theater witnessing James Gunn's third final hoorah with Guardians? Well, I want to sit on that point for just really quickly, because we're talking about Guardians Volume 3, which is now almost a decade after the first Guardians movie. And I'm wondering if you could go back real quick to when we first heard about the idea of, you know, we're getting phase two, we're getting Captain America, Winter Soldier, Bucky's coming back. Oh, my God. Second Avengers movie. And then here's a movie with a tree and a raccoon. Well, who the hell are any of these people <laughs> who are like, who is the green lady? Who is like Ronan? This was, I think, our first cosmic film, was it not? It was our first cosmic film. And more importantly, if you go back to that time in the MCU, it, w- it wasn't just a cosmic film. Like it wasn't a character like an Adam Warlock who we now see in this movie. It wasn't a character, you know, like the Nova Corps, which had some kind of thing, even amongst comic nerds. And this was this was at a time where I was just starting to dip my toes into the world of comics and nerddom kind of thing. Uh, thank you, First Avengers Move, for doing all that. Um, but that kind of thing of even when I talked to nerds about it, a lot of them didn't know who the Guardians were. It was just a, a motley crew of sort of unassuming characters who were kind of shoved together. They were a reboot of a team from the 70s with a weird like glitter guy. It was a weird semblance of the comic world that Marvel was choosing to make their big launch point onto Avengers 2. And we all kind of were flustered by it. And then that first movie came out, and I don't know about you, but it blew my socks off. I absolutely adored it. That first Guardians is one of my favorite just standalone Marvel movies just as a whole. It it flows so well. The comedy is so great. It shocked everyone by what it was trying to do. And then Guardians 2 comes out a couple years later, and for my money, while I don't think that is quite as good, I have my issues with that movie, but having just watched it literally a couple nights ago after this movie and going back to it, I do appreciate what a lot of that movie was trying to do. And so going into Guardians 3... You know, we saw the marketing, we heard all the stuff, we saw, you know, the prep at Comic-Con, the idea that big things are going to go down in this movie and not all of them are going to be happy. And purely as a movie goes, oh yeah, I'm happy with this. Nine years since that song, uh, Hooked on a Feeling and Come and Get Your Love have both just implanted themselves in my brain, specifically associated to Guardians of the Galaxy. My, for whatever reason, uh, just personal anecdote, my little brother would like be really into the come and get your love song. And so, uh, that's also associated like to some of my family. So it's, it, the Guardians movies are so endearing. I've enjoyed each one with very close friends of mine and the discussions we have afterwards. You know, I don't leave these movies without a tear in my eye. Um, it, let alone like, a waterfall of emotions across my face. I'm remember, I'm reminded of how uh volume two closes out and that's in 2017. So we have, we have nearly double the break between volume one, volume two, but that's not to say that we spent that long without the characters. I mean, look at the Christmas special that just released. Um And while I have a, sorry, I was about to say, did you get you around to watching the Christmas special? I meant to rewatch it, but no, I just saw it the once and I thought it was far too much Kevin Bacon. I still have never seen it. So coming oh. into this, there was, there was a whole chunk of thing where I was like, oh, this is what happens in the, in the holiday special. So you should know that at the wrap up of the holiday special, it really is cemented that Mantis and Star-Lord, you know, they are brother and sister. They are like, they, they lock in that relationship. And I think that that's really like the love that they share there. I was hoping for a little bit of a, of a tease between new Gamora and Star-Lord, 
but they didn't go that route. And maybe that's for the better. You know, that's a story that maybe everyone's expecting. So let's go ahead and subvert expectations and tell them what they show them what else we have in store for these guardians. You know, this is a guardians three discussion though. So let's go ahead and get the ball rolling there. I think we have a really big fake out here in guardians three, because for one, the movie gets going. It starts immediately. Uh, our opening track is none other than creep the acoustic version. And we have, uh, we are introduced to this new headquarters on nowhere with rocket walking around, uh, really taking in this new society where uh, Nebula and Gru are nurturing an environment alongside Drax and star Lord is drinking himself to the, to the ground because of his, his um, guilt and his just sadness over losing his love, but not really. I want to have a longer discussion about why that's so trippy to have someone from your past who, who has loved you so deeply die and having to mourn them only for them to come back and for you to want the same out of this person who is, who has now been shaped by a, by a different reality. Like that is no longer the person of you, right? It's kind of goes back to like this, this is kind of philosophical. So it's bigger than this podcast, but <laughs> we can talk about how um you look at pictures of yourself from the past and how it's never really you, you know, that's just the, the person that was captured on camera, but that's not to say that that's the same person who's viewing the photo um, too deep. I know, but <laughs> it's well, a great, no, you go. Cause I was going to go off of that and be like, I know we don't have to go through every single frame of this movie, but yeah. I'm glad you brought up creep again, because I think starting with that version of creep off the acoustic version, I think is so pivotal because, you know, we see that opening scene with the high evolutionary. We immediately cut to rocket, And not only does it set up the idea of, you know, rocket. Coming to terms with his own emotions, we see him, you know, after the events of Endgame, becoming part of this new team, being kind of a focal point of, you know, this universal restoration movement after that five-year time gap. But then we start this, and immediately you are brought into the tone of, this is a guy who is broken, because you hear in Tom York's voice in that, you know, once the title card drops, his voice is literally shattering as he's trying to hit that high note. And I immediately felt that thing of like, yeah, the Guardians, they have a home, they're together, you know. They have all this stuff going for them, but their de facto center is going through a lot. And the movie is kind of starting out that journey of decompressing and deconstructing all of that. And I, I didn't realize that until the second viewing where I was like, oh, that's kind of genius. This is a very different movie to the previous Guardian films we've had. The previous Guardian films have had galaxy level threats. And this one is a story about rescuing one of their best friends and the villain. Um, for one, it's not Adam Warlock. And for two, the high evolutionary as he's presented will is not as I say doomsday E as ego or as Ronin, which we've experienced in the past. I feel as though there are some opinions that say that's to the guardian, like that's to this story's detriment. Like the guardians of the galaxy really take a small stake and turn that into their final adventure again spoiler review in a movie where a planet gets destroyed i don't think this is small stakes true very true let's discuss adam warlock in the trailers i felt that adam warlock he was the post-credit reveal of guardians of the galaxy volume two we have he he wasn't his cocoon was and we were left you're you're right okay sure (laughs) his cocoon it was the embryo of adam warlock and then the announcement of will poulter came then he got jacked and everybody got drooly faced and then (laughs) he shows up in in this film and he's a goofball for one he shows up and it almost like if you put it side by side yes 
Thanos shows up in Infinity War, really wrecks Thor. Um, but Adam Warlock comes in and within the first, I would say, six minutes of the movie takes on all of the guardians and really beats them. I would say like he, he does retreat um, after failing his task of retrieving the raccoon, which is rocket. But we get the early impression that war that Adam Warlock is not a, is not a foe to be uh, taken lightly. Uh, he's a little bit more comedic. And you, you notice that like in his mannerisms and how he just regards the world around him. Cause he's a newborn. But once we get into the bigger picture of where he stands with the sovereign, specifically his mother, um, you know, Elizabeth. Tibicky. So hilarious. I really like her in this role. She, they give her better material the second movie, but here, um, it was just a pleasure to see her again. And then we're introduced to the high evolutionary. So the high evolutionary is the big bad of this film. He is Rocket's creator and his, his goal in life, his life's purpose is to perfect the world. It is so that he can experiment on animals and he pushes them through he says, I think it's like millions of years of evolution in a matter of seconds with his experiments. And well, that's what he's able to do because of rockets. Rocket is able, he's capable of invention. Like he has invention of thought down. It's not just intellect. And uh, they make me feel smart because they put in root memorization, <laughs> which makes me feel like, oh, now I know. Um, but that's really why he's after Rocket. And once Rocket gets damaged by Warlock at the start of the film, that's what sends the team on this rescue mission. Because if they try and operate on him or use a health pack, the conveniently like random health pack, um, he has a kill switch inside of him that will be activated. So they need a, they need a, a bypass code. Well, the only way they're going to find that is if they go to this organic facility or this half organic facility. Um, I really admire how they use the high evolutionary in this film because with his scenes, I have two opinions. For one, I think that all of these scenes speak to a a greater evil and just a better character when placed side by side with the latest villain we just got, which was Quantumania's Kang the Conqueror, where I thought the way that people talk about Kang was never explicitly stated. And I complained about this on the podcast. I was like, the script is so lacking in terms of how they can buff up this character by just saying he is going to find us, you know, like they were so vague that they ended up kind of like diminishing his threat. But here, the high evolutionary, they talk about him explicitly. And I was able to just be on board with that. He wasn't the the worst evil in the galaxy, but it was enough for the guardians to want to go and stop him. And then the second opinion I had was kind of like more of a, hey, critical one. And it's like, I just <laughs> feel like kind of got him being either uber fanatical or outraged completely. So those are the two points that I had. How did you like the high evolutionary in this film? Loved him. Uh, Chikwudi Awuji, who we talked about Peacemaker on the main show, however many, however while back that was. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah, yes. that's Vern. Did you Thank you. I, I looked him up just to see like a few pictures that he had been in in the past, but I it slipped my mind that he was in Peacemaker. Yeah, he was just there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so obviously getting the gun connection in there, which is the first of many that I'm sure we'll talk about with this. His wife um, shows up. Okay. His wife, Linda Cardellini, who I, I know everyone had pointed out like, oh, they had worked together before, but I didn't know on what. Oh, yeah, the Scooby-Doo connection. I forgot about that. What do you mean James Gunn was involved with Scooby-Doo? James Gunn wrote the two live action Scooby-Doo movies, which Linda Cardellini was Velma in, And I was like, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. He wrote them? Yeah. 
I never knew James Gunn wrote those movies. I thought this was common knowledge. No, this is, I I hope that you're listening. I hope whoever's listening learns this too and is smiling because that is so great. Of course, of course the two Scooby-Doo movies are amazing. Freaking Gunn wrote them. Oh, that's great. Um, But no, sorry, Chikori Iwuji. Um, he is phenomenal in this. And I know that you kind of had the thing of him going back and forth between two moods. I have a whole examination about the high evolutionary that I would want to get across, but I don't know if we fully have the time for it, but basically it just falls around like number one, getting into your earlier point about Kang. I obviously really like what they did with Kang and Quantumania. I really like the, the direction they're going in that. But as we mentioned on our very long Quantumania review, that script is lacking in a lot of directions. Here, I think Gunn really establishes, as you mentioned, the idea of giving us the high evolutionary as someone who is a fully fleshed out character, but who is also completely unstable. And we are able to see both sides of that completely intrinsic to one another. You can't have the, you know, um, the, the egomaniacal genius without the complete power mad, you know, sociopath. You can't have one without the other. And I found that Uwuji really was able to balance it. Whenever he goes into one of his outbursts, and I should be kind of nervously laughing, I just wasn't because I was just so struck by the sheer presence that he has. And that's whether in the flashbacks or whether we get to the present day stuff. The one thing is that his powers, I think, are a little confusing just because they kind of get into the thing of like, now gravity bends against my will. And you're like, that's the power suit. Great. But we don't really get a lot from that. But I almost don't care because I find his character so fascinating. And what Gun is, what Gun and Awuji are able to tap into in that idea of, Someone who is so focused on progress for the sake of progress and taking away any semblance of life or sentience just in the name of glorious progress. Like that kind of, you know, Machiavellian drive, I think is just so poignant to watch and winds up just being really terrifying as we get more and more into his machinations. You know, what's so fun is in those early uh, scenes where he has those experiments. And I, I mean, I say early, but I mean like the flashbacks. Right. I really admired the the drama of the score. You know, it sounded almost like I, I'm going to say opera, but I don't even know how to define it. But it just it put me in, in the mindset of like, this is somebody who thinks they are God. And it it really plays into the tone of of what being in a space with him would feel like. So I really like that. I thought that they did they did what they could to show us that type of um, energy from him. But as you're watching it in the theater, you're there. And that's my impression of uh, how it felt in those scenes. Well, even, you know, skipping ahead a fair amount, but there's that point in the third act where his aide is just like, for God's sake, you need to stop. And he screams, they're just like, no, God doesn't exist. That's why I stepped in. And if you want to get, and this is me getting into my whole spiel for a second, but, <laughs> it's, but it's the idea of like the high evolutionary being, if you want to take James Gunn and his most intellectual, this is a scathing indictment of, you know, Elon Musk, like that whole Silicon Valley God complex type of thing, who, again, fervently insists that their own drive and their own insistence for productivity and the end result is better than any of the means leading up to it. And again, I just, Chukwudi Awuji just finds that great balance of trying to be like, yes, in the darkest days of humanity, you could go towards that thing. But when you have characters, you know, like Quill, like Rocket, like Drax, like Nebula to kind of build off of is like, no, this is what actually matters. All of that becomes the most perverse visualization of that. And so when, you know, when you get that sequence of it blows up, the screen turns to white and he's walking amongst his complete ashes wondering, I don't know what to do now, but I need to do something like that kind of desperation just really shines through the character, even from those first moments up until the very end. 
Brandon, you, if you were a meme, you are a Charlie Day as he has his like stringed, uh, his stringed analysis of like ropes all around him and he's proving a point. Uh, that's what I, that's what I really got off of you right now. But, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying about the high evolutionary. And, um, I, I think that one of my favorite lines of his, uh, because of the actor's performance, sorry, I, I'm slipping on the name now, but he, when he says, you know, they're like, what do you want us to do with, with the remaining batch of, with the remaining batch of 93 or whatever they call it? And he's just like, what else? Like, just incinerate them. I love that line so much. His delivery is so perfect and his just, um, his physicality, it's so short, but it's a scene that I just go, damn, like, he's so good. It's the thing that he pauses there. And I don't think he pauses because he cares. I think he pauses because it's just like, I don't know what to answer. Like, that seems so simple, right? Should we get into batch 89 or how, whatever batch they are, I think we should get into yeah. Rocket's childhood friends. And so in Rocket's early life, he befriends a, these nightmarish looking, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to call that. I almost use your word right now, uh, mastications, but it's like, that's not the word. What am I looking for? These nightmarish type creatures. Yeah, so essentially. They, they have like their limbs removed and they have like just these, one, there's a rabbit with spider legs. I'll say that whose mouth is gone and replaced like by these huge metal jaws. It looks like who gave me vibes of the spider from Toy Story. <gasps> yes. Spider with baby head. Yes. Uh, we have a wall. So that her name is Floor because she likes the floor. And I then floor. We, we have Teeves because he has a, he has huge teeth. And that is a, I'm going to say walrus who, yes. um, is attached to like these two giant wheels on the side. And then we have Lila, Lila, the fan favorite, the Linda Cardellini. She is, um, the otter. Uh, yes. Otter. And she has some skinny robotic arms. And so they all have been experimented on. And it seems like Lila is the more compassionate of the group. Um, Floor is a kind of like a, a young spirit. Like I, I get the sense that she just wants to have fun. Very like, not heavy intellect there. And then Teeves, I feel the same way. Um, he's kind of more like the friendly giant though, because he is so big and he just speaks so like dopey. Uh, and then you have Rocket who really excelled with his intellect and where his brain developed. Um, they find a family in their captivity and just experiencing like their playfulness and their, um, their vulnerability with each other. It's one of the, it's one of the reasons I think this movie is so great is because that just taps into your emotions so quickly. And I think the first time we see baby rocket and then the next time we see him engage with the group, there was already tears on my face. Like James Gunn really, really wanted to uh, make a tearjerker out of that scene. Yeah. We should quickly say uh, Asim Chowdhury is the voice of Teeps, And then uh, Michaela Hoover, who's an Italian actress who voices floor. Somehow that's not Nick Frost. I went through the first viewing and be like, Oh, Nick Frost is doing a great job with this. It's not. Um, although I do need to bring down your move for a second, uh, as much as I love the batch 89 stuff and we will certainly hop into it, uh, rockets first canonical words are hurt. Screw you, James Gunn. <gasps> oh, oh my God. I know. Oh, oh my God. I really hate him. I think I do hate him. Um, <laughs> it's, it's terrible. You know, I thought that baby Groot was so cute that like he can make me cry, but no baby rocket is so just like just. Dis- nearly destroyed that it's it's just so sad you know you, you pity him so hard <laughs> but like but actually getting serious stuff like i like the batch 89 stuff it, 
I will say I saw a tweet like a couple days ago being like, this is your new Disney plus series. The scene of them all lying around. It's almost <laughs> like, so you want to watch eight episodes of animal cruelty. Um, and I think that's kind of the key thing as you talked about with Rocketer a little bit, which is, you know, I went into this hearing that there was going to be a lot of stuff regarding animal torture and cruelty and things like that. And beware if you are an animal lover. And I will say that, yeah, yeah, if you are really susceptible to that, I would stay away from this for a little while. But I do think of what you said earlier, where it's like, we don't see a lot. Like we see, you know, rockets struck to a table. We see needles. We see blood sometimes, but we never see the really grotesque stuff. And for a while, I was really waiting for that to take, again, I don't need to see, you know, Rocket's chest open or anything like that, but I, I figured for a movie this dark and that was going into, the, into this kind of grim territory, I thought they could have taken it a couple steps further instead of just very much going to think of, you know, they're all happy and go lucky and, oh God, please don't let anything bad into them. I really did want to see a bit more of the stuff of them in the cells, a bit more of like what happens in that, you know, facility kind of, because Again, we get like the scenes where, you know, the high evolutionary is showing rocket music and you kind of get the idea of he did have a childhood here. He had a life. He was able to be brought up into this for horrible consequences. But at the same time, that was still his life. And I feel like in a movie that is this long and this packed, I feel like that was the one thing where I was like, I like what you're doing. Obviously, it gripped me in my entire heart, but I want to see a bit more of it just from a critical perspective. I was worried with how they were going to take away Rocket's family because I found myself immediately attached and I just wanted what was best for our young character. But knowing that he had to have gone through something even more traumatic in order for him to like, um, just with what, with the way the story was going. So when we've, when we get to that point where we realize how he lost his family, I was just thankful that it was something quick and, and he didn't have to watch them as I expected. I expected his friends to go into that evolutionary tube and to like, I thought when you talk about it going dark, that's dark, yeah. <laughs> like watching them boil and transform into something grotesque. I was so much, you know, not satisfied, but just like, okay, you know, you, you really let them off easy. Um, they, they're resting and they even come back to rocket. And that is another scene that just really, rings at your emotions but enough about that i mean yeah let's do some closing points there because i do want to talk about this movie's comedy and why i was spending as much time if not more you know crying and then (laughs) patching all that up with some laughter i was just about to say going to just that uh the whole point where we lose florentifs that gun is playing us like a freaking flute in that because it's that thing of Oh yeah, there's, uh, there's rapturous joy. And then, oh God, Lila's dead. And then, yes, he takes down the high evolutionary. And then, oh no, they're dead. And then he gets away, but we linger on his face. So we're kind of sitting in that moment when we can't get away. It's literally like bing, bang, bing, bang, bing, bang, boom for like a full five minutes of just gun going, sit here, feel something, you idiots. And you know what? Yeah, for as blatant as it is, it totally works on both ends. On the other side. Happy go lucky galaxy rainbow. Uh, this we're is still about, Guardians of the Galaxy movie. This is still Guardians, and Gunn is still a so witty and so just I don't know. There's something that he does in his writing that I admire so much because his comedy feels particular to him, and I I think that I'm so eager to see what projects he brings to us uh, with his writing over on the DC front. But here, still with Guardians Volume Three, this might be one of the as far as memory goes, I know you said you recently went through a rewatch, but in my memory, I do believe Guardians Volume 3 made me laugh 
the most out of the three. I just remembered there being so many moments with our new characters, whether it be Mantis and how she engages with Quill or the, the new dynamic between Gamora and Gru as she struggles to understand him. Um, Warlock did have a few good punches here and there, but I thought this movie was funny as hell. And it, it was enough for me to walk out going like, damn, you know, I, I laughed so much throughout this film. Uh, how did you like this film's comedy? Nothing made me laugh as hard as from the first movie with, you're making me kick grass. Um, but there were points in this, whether it's, you know, Adam Warlock being, I will train him in the ways of the sovereign, proceeds to be, I will train him not to do that. Or like, you know, any of the stuff with Drax that is both really funny and also really sweet and sincere. This is really funny. Uh, you're right. The Groot and Gamora stuff was really kind of a hoot. Uh, all the stuff with the Orgoscope, I thought was pretty funny in like a weird kind of, this makes no sense, but I love it kind of way. The first Guardians film, I want to go back to because that is like the classic, you know, what we got from Gunn approaching these characters. And then two, there was something really just cheesy and weird about two. Like I'm reminded of the scenes of Star-Lord and Ego, like throwing that ball of energy back and forth and giving us like those dad and son moments and me kind of rolling my eyes at it. Um, You know, other I think standout moments of comedy from the second one are like when Yondu and Rocket are passing through each and every, you know, uh, jump in space that they go through. That was hilarious. But, uh, I don't know if two was, if it made me laugh that, that much. But this film, yeah, no, I was, I was there. Um, I was going to say, cause earlier, like my problem with two is that it focuses too much on the jokes. There are remnants of that here. Like I think the whole spacesuit scene goes on for like a couple seconds too long. I thought like some of the stuff with, uh, with the house got a bit too drawn out, but like other than that, as I see your, you had an early reaction. I think it was a tweet or an, it was an Instagram post, and you had talked about how the point you mentioned, you wish it leaned more into the darker elements of the film. And I saw that on Org Org Corp when they have the conversation happen between Peter and Gamora. We see a Star Lord and Gamora finally talking about like, hey this is who you were to me and this is what I'm struggling with. And, and then they kind of, they, they rip it off by having it be this, uh, this hilarious moment between like, Hey, you know, you're on the wrong comm channel. Like you need to do these different things. And I love it. It's a great bit, but I, I wanted more of that conversation. I really wanted to feel like how gun was going to flesh out, um, Gamora's reaction to this information. You know, how would she feel knowing that, this person who they've had a life seemingly together um be be robbed of him and like be reasonable but still be your own person it's just it's such a it's such a tricky situation that i was i was like oh my gosh like let's hear more uh but unfortunately we don't get that which which is okay you know it's not the star lord and gamora film it's not but it's what i was kind of like waiting for in that moment yeah, Gunn kind of uses the 2014 Gamora to, I think, the best effect that he can. Um, because again, I think a lot of us were really hoping to see more of Gamora and Star-Lord from those first two films, even if we didn't like it in the first film, i.e. me. Like, we wanted to see where we go, you know, post-Infinity War Endgame type thing. And it's good. Problem is, she doesn't have that much of an arc in it. Like, it's very much a thing of Peter needing to realize that he needs to move on. And Gamora is like, yeah, I'm with the Ravagers. I like these guys. Bye, dude. Um, and you get a couple of teases in there where like she warms up to the group and she's there for her sister and all that. Like, that's nice. But I did sort of feel like I, I'm conflicted because of the thing of like, I like her comedy. Zoe Saldana is obviously still a badass. She gets a lot to do. 
But if you're looking at like a movie where almost everyone gets a pretty good arc to them, I look at Gamora and go, oh, you're doing the best you can. Like, look, you're here. Yes. Awesome. Let's talk about her relationship with Nebula and let's spend time with Nebula. Yes. Because when we talk about our our daughters of Thanos in these movies, Gamora and Nebula have now pretty much switched. You know, we have Nebula being a a core member of the Guardians, really caring for her troop and uh being a force to be reckoned with for the for good. And that was not the case if we think back to volume one and how like bloodthirsty she was to try and hunt down the guardians for her father and to really prove herself, uh, before she believed that, you know, back when she believed that that's who she had to be. Um, but now we have such a, such a truer character that Nebula is one of my favorites. When we talk about, you know, uh, ranking our characters, like Nebula is going to be in the A rank because of her journey and how she's really overcome that sort of, that need to be enough for her father um, and fight up against her sister. That was uh, a big moment of part two in that, in that isolated scene. I really did enjoy too, when we have the Gamora Nebula face off. Oh yeah. And then we have Gamora introduced now. Yes. As a ravager. And she's a part of this story because Nebula is there. She's not a part of the story for any other reason than the credits in the first half. And then to pretty much rescue her sister in the second I think that if you take away the Guardians and just focus on Gamora in this film, you get that threatening lady warrior of the galaxy that, you know, she is in conversation for the lead for the films that lead up to it. Um, but we don't we never really see it because she finds like she has a heart and she's more um, she's softer as in those later movies, um, at least like when she's not fighting. Right. She's still ferocious when she fights. But now we kind of do have like that hardened Gamora, which is very different for Zaldana to play. And I felt that she switched up the character well. I thought that she gave us a new Gamora to be introduced to, one that hasn't spent nearly five or however many years with the Guardians. I'm not sure how much real time has passed there. And also they're in space. Who knows? <laughs> Karen Gillan is in this for the long game because I remember in the first Guardians movie being like, yeah, it's Karen. I know Karen Gillan from Doctor Who and she's fun in this. Like she gets to be like makeup and everything. That's kind of cool. And then Guardians 2 happened and we got a little tidbits of there but again the jokes were too few and funny in between and then the avengers movies came out and i remember very vividly going holy crap karen gillen's nebula is really cool and then getting into this you know i know gun had mentioned in an interview before like we wanted to see what happens to nebula when she doesn't have the programming and condition of the ever-present father in thanos what happens when that is taken away and you just have nebula as someone who is driven, who has aggression, but who also has this really great sense of loyalty and, you know, found community to them. And that's kind of what I really loved about her arc, which is that, you know, she is trying to find a place. She is just trying to, you know, make, like, literally from the very start, we're seeing her, like, put up street signs and, you know, help citizens around and, like, her getting away from that influence, as you mentioned. And even when Gamora comes back into her life, like, that isn't, it's not bringing up any kind of false trauma. It's not like, oh, God, it's my sister who reminds me of my dad who is becoming more like my dad. No, it's they're both in kind of similar places. They know where they're at. They both have their lives, but they do also have this really genuine bond that hasn't been lost. The way that she regards Gamora is like, she's not dead. She just doesn't remember the last few years. And it reminds me that Nebula and Gamora are sisters and they have so many more years together than the few that they have shared with the involvement of the Guardians. There's at least a couple of times in the movie where they make the joke of like, Gamora's dead. She's not dead. But remember, it's always Kraglin or Drax or Rocket saying the thing of, like, she's dead. And it's always Nebula being like, nope, she's not dead. Like, 
there's always that thing of she cares about Gamora no matter who she is. And I really found that thing of, oh, yeah, all the years working for Thanos, all the years doing all these atrocities, they're still sisters. There was one thing I wanted to mention in terms of the I think this is a point about action, but I was just satisfied to to know that even though they gave Nebula this like nanotech arm, they didn't allow it to be this all-encompassing, like, problem-solving device. I I was reminded of Lightyear and how the cat was so just available to solve any problem that Buzz had to to a point where Buzz was now just a he was kind of just a liability like the cat was able to step in and do whatever he needed to do um here Nebula has an arm that is at one point a sword at one point a um a ship string a, a blowtorch um another time and most other times it's a weapon and I never found myself just like rolling my eyes because here she is, you know, now her hand is a parachute. Now her hand is like a cloaking device. Now her hand is a oxygen tank. Like they, ne- they never pulled that trick. And I was satisfied because it-, it looks like, you know, she has a cool ass piece of tech on her arm, but they don't let it be more than what, um, than what is like necessary or what is acceptable for the situation. It's for lack of a better word, believable in a movie like this. <laughs> yes, yes. And they gave her this like cool ass jack pack that she uses once and then we don't see it. And I'm like, oh, I, come on, bring I it back. That back. <laughs> bring it back. Did it, Let's did, it also, did it also give you yellow jacket vibes? Oh, yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. The way that those wings come out, they're not even wings. They're just like prongs that are sticking out uh-huh. the side. All right. I'm talking about my my next, like, just beloved character. They give Mantis so much to do in this movie, whether it's um, her comedic beats in every location, uh, whether it's finally giving her an, an action sequence where she proves her her prowess in, in battle, like in combat, um, or it's just her heart. You know, I think that she is literally the the most empathetic individual on the team. So it's only right for her to really guide those um, those scenarios and circumstances where the team is really lacking, you know, a direction on how they should feel. Nebula is um, always regarded as like being an asshole and being root, being mean. Drax being careless and selfish grew <laughs> tree. And then Quill kind of being a goof, but he's all over the place a bit. But Mantis knows wh- when to feel the emotions that will benefit the group. And I really admire that about her. She's she's lovely. I'm so happy the Guardians recruited her after two. It's a character that I never would have even known about had Gunn not included her in volume two. So I'm so thankful now that she is a member of the team and and where her journey left off. I think that's to a bigger point, which is that pretty much everyone, aside from Kraglin and Cosmo, who are there, everyone else gets their moment in this film. Like, not just the hallway scene that I'm sure we'll talk about, but, like, everyone gets a big moment in this, like, a, like an arc, and development. And Mantis is kind of emblematic of that, where, you know, in two, she's she's timid. She has powers, but she has a role to play, and she does it very well, and Pom Clementiev is wonderful. And then in the Avengers films, we got to see her really address that more. I, I know in the holiday special, as you mentioned, there's the big reveal with her and uh, Peter, but here she gets to be again, a fully fleshed out character. There's a real back and forth between Nebula. She's not scared of her anymore. She feels like an intrinsic value to the team. And, you know, even when they had that conversation between her, Drax and Nebula on the ship, and there's that idea of like, yeah, I am here and I do have my problems, but like, I'm worth a damn to be here. And again, Pom Clementia, beyond just being charming as hell and being wonderful and her comedic timing is fantastic. I was really proud of her. And I was like, yeah, go Mantis. I'm so sorry I didn't mention this sooner, but on this, and I'm going to go back to Mantis, but on the subject of 
Nebula, Karen Gillian. I didn't mention her role in Oculus. Whoever wants to check out a, a great example of her performance. Uh, I think I had only seen her in Guardians and then Oculus came out, uh, directed by the magnificent Mike Flanagan. Everybody go check it out. Uh, I, I really loved her performance in that film and she stood out to me as like a, a horror, a horror scream queen. So I'll have to, um, be waiting at the theaters for when the next announcement is when she's attached to a horror project. Now back to Mantis. Um, with Palm, I, I only want to see her in other projects. I only want to know, you know, how else her, her skills can be translated. I saw her briefly in Westworld season four, but I believe, and now that it's canceled, I won't be seeing her anymore. And I don't know if she died. Spoiler alert for Westworld too, by the way. Um, and she's not major, uh, <laughs> but that being said, I'd love to hear the, hear the Drax appeal. Um, you're already smiling. So tell me, how did it feel to see this big brute with a big heart, uh, go through this final, uh, volume in the Guardians? First of all, I don't know about you. I thought they were going to kill him in the Agoroscope. I thought he Drax on my on my bingo card for what Guardians had at least three of those death predictions was Drax. I was convinced. I thought, okay, they won't kill Rocket. It's too it's too in our face. And why would they kill Gamora again? Nebula, can she die? I don't know. Tree, he's going to grow. Star Lord, sure, maybe. Um, but I was like, if somebody's dying. It's Drax. There's everything that makes sense for him to die. That's twice so far you've insulted Groot for just being a tree. But I, <laughs> no, I, um, I love Groot. I, I love you guys. Okay, you guys I love you guys. Um, but no, Drax's arc is really cool in this because I I realized this on my second viewing of this is a movie based on a bunch of characters who almost all have some sort of daddy or father figure issues. Whether you're talking about Quill and either Yondu or Ego, whether you're talking about Gamora and Nebula, that is Nebula so true. And who's Groot's ta- dad? We don't know. It's, Groot's probably it's the Rocket. Ex- well, it's okay, Rocket. Yeah. Rocket has his own issues. Gosh darn it! <laughs> um, Kraglin even with um uh, with Yondu as well. But Drax is a dad, and you know they drill that in at the very end. But I love the fact of how they build up to that, just being that thing of, you know, he is a brute. He is simple. He has his strengths and. I do love, I do love Mantis's line of just like, yeah, he's the only one that doesn't hate himself. And he doesn't like all throughout these movies. Yes. He doesn't have the comic accurate thing of, I got to kill Thanos and, you know, regain my family's glory. No, he didn't do that, but he's still really strong and really powerful in a lot of really unique ways to the team. And when we get to see that scene with him and the kids, I just really felt, first of all, Dave Batista, who is becoming an even better and better actor, you know, in the last couple of years, we all know this, but like, he really gets to shine through on this. I think Gunn finally saw just like give him the really sweet, you know, emotional, genuine scene with the kids. And it totally works out. But like even more than that, it's just that thing of Drax was meant to take the hatred and anger in his life and turn it towards guidance. And I think that's something that you could say about a lot of the characters. But I think Batista specifically is able to turn that and make it the most charming of all of the arcs in the movie and just make it really satisfying regardless. He's been kind of not sidelined because he's a, he's a major character of the guardians. He was basically sidelined in volume two. Yes. And so to have a reemergence of where he can go with his life outside of just being big and bad. I love what they did here. And Dave Batista, when, when that big man goes soft, I'm like, 
Dude, I am right there. Uh, give me a spinoff of Drax leading like a school <laughs> and him not losing his temper and then Nebula like being Papa, Dra- <laughs> Papa Drax and the Juke Jupes. That's what you call it. Papa Drax and the Juke Jupes. Yes, please. Let's talk a little bit about our, I'll stop calling him tree. Let's talk about Gru. Let's talk about Vin Diesel and how you land a contract, a deal with Marvel and you come back time and time again. And I know those paychecks are fat. I know uh, at minimum, if I had to guess, I'm not even going to guess because I don't even know that stuff. <laughs> but I can't lines, imagine it's that high. Three lines. Tell me he hasn't made mults, multiple millions off of his role as, off of, as, as group. Well, well, would like, you believe that? Yeah, I, by yeah, far, right? he's, made it, he's made at least $10 million. Oh my gosh. Like sign me up when it comes to voice acting, sign me up as a Vin Diesel type because Bradley Cooper, as handsome as he is, lends his handsome voice to rocket. And even here as baby rocket, he couldn't even voice him. Not to say that that's like a bad thing either. I know that uh Gunn's brother stepped in to voice him as well as another character, but back to Groot. Let's just talk about the visual of Groot. Okay. We go from really, uh, how would you describe Groot in volume one? I would say he's just like tall, reliable, kind of, it's hard to describe his physique. He's kind of just like tall and he's lanky. He's lanky. Yeah. He's a lanky type. I'm like, I'm, I was trying to build his class. So I'm like, okay, his class at that point is like fighter. He's giving, you know, warrior frontline. I love it. And then we get to volume two. We got baby Groot, baby Groot. He's going to do what he can. He's a little sneaky. He's a little attitude but we love him. He's a kid. Infinity war. And Endgame, we get teenage Groot. He's got attitude. He's got um more, you know, uh pre-teen kind of vibes. And then we arrive to volume three, and he is jacked. Groot is now a, like, complete jock, complete bro. This is like the bro of Groot. And I really I really love his bro evolution, uh, even until the further point of the after credit scene, where, no, no, his class has changed. He is a full-on tank, and he looks, he looks so mean. I love it. He, I, I love Boulder Groot. Boulder Groot and his, his, uh, dormant state just being, <laughs> you know, whatever rock he was. They give Groot wings in this film. And I, you know, he must have drank a Red Bull. Red Bull gives you wings. And I really admired how, how they f- like fluffed that out. It, it just felt so good to hear it. You know, they're, they're falling off of this, uh, uh, this ship that's ascending. And then it kind of just gives you the oh shit moment of, Groot can grow wings. That, oh my that, god, that did feel a bit like the Nebula arm thing you were talking about, where it's like For we really? need we need Groot really? to do a thing. Now he has wings. I don't know, Brandon. It makes sense to me. Fair enough. <laughs> Groot, how are we feeling? Uh, and, I, and I respect you know there isn't much to say about Groot here, honestly. But you know, what did you get? Uh, great. I love the fact that you know again. Big spoiler, when Rocket comes back, like, it's Peter and it's Groot next to him. I'm glad they weren't just like, no, it's Peter and Rocket. That's the whole, no, 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 like, Groot has been with him from second one. We need to establish that. And they never lose the sense of, like, Groot is his most loyal companion who is always there for him. Again, I like what he brings to the team. Vin Diesel is fine in this. And again, like, the end scene, I'm sure you've heard the debate of, like, is that him learning new words or is that just us hearing that? I don't really care. I just thought it was sweet either way. Oh my gosh, I kind of got chills right now when you said, is that us, like, just hearing him? Like, is that how the Guardians are, where he says, I am Groot enough to the point where he now said, like, they hear words when he says, I am Groot? Wow. Yeah, that's kind of the intention is, 
I haven't thought about that. Yeah, it's either him learning new words or no. No, I don't want to think that he learned new words because that makes no sense in my head. But if it, oh my gosh, Brandon, I'm like, whoa, okay. I want to go back to a point that we kind of made earlier, which is, you know, Drax potentially dying at the Orgoroscope, which he doesn't. Uh, Character deaths in this. We didn't get a ton, and yet we did actually get a ton, just not a really important one. So I'm curious what your thoughts on were, how they tease those, and would you have liked to see them do more with those? All right, here we go. So we discussed the potential death of Drax and how even in this wacky environment, they could have taken out one of our, like, our guardians uh, in Drax because he gets shot and it looks like he gets hit hard. Twice. Um, twice. And Nebula's been hit enough and, like, broken and recalibrated, like, reconfigured her bones that I'm kind of just like, she's she's going to be fine. And then... You know, Drax makes it to the end. We know that Rocket survives. I don't see, you know, they're not taking out Groot, but they have this moment where Quill, in when they're all escaping the mega ship, they are having a bit of a Noah's Ark, right? They're like, not just the people, save all the animals. And it really speaks to- But the women like, and the children too. Um, It really speaks to the uh admiration that, and respect that Rocket has for all of his, all of his- friends who aren't humans like he knows just how bad they have it even if they can't speak even if they don't have this level of intellect that all these humans have what is what's the line i thought we were just doing all the higher life forms and star lord replies and he's like yeah me too um i thought that was kind of like i was like how dare you star lord how dare you say that (laughs) because your friend is a raccoon you're just your best friend um best (laughs) second best and so then Quill is the last to escape the ship and he does this crazy ass like run from a exploding island of dinosaurs because of the volcanoes type of escape. Uh Yes, I'm winking, winking at Fallen Kingdom. But anyways, Chris Pratt is floating in space and we get a call back to Yondu going cold and dying in space because of the, uh, the the pressure and there being no oxygen and Quill's face flares up. He looks like he's about to pop and I'm convinced he's gone. Even a Groot tries to save him with his arms that can seemingly do everything. They can't save Quill from space. And oh, that's when I was like, wait, are they really going to do this? And then we see the hand. We see the hand and Brandon, I, this is my experience and I want to hear yours. We see the hand reaching towards Quill almost as if it froze next to him. And I think in my head, that's Gamora. Like Gamora lurt, like leaped out to grab Quill and found herself stuck in that same state. But thinking, you know, that was her big, uh, here he is making so many sacrifices for his family. Uh, for some reason it like clicked for me and you hear all these comments about it. I, I ranted about this in our last full episode where I said it's not really news to share these actors' positions on whether or not they would come back for a character because I'm sure if the money's there and the story makes sense, like, they're going to be back. But we know for a fact that Gamora, uh, Zoe Saldana, and Chris Pratt are not returning for Star-Lord and Gamora in the future installments for the MCU. We're not even going to have James Gunn come back for the MCU. We know where he is with DC. So I, in that moment, it made sense. Everything clicked and was right, and this was Gamora and Star-Lord's end. Except... It was Adam Warlock who was in there, and he kind of pulls just a Captain Marvel and pulls him out of space. He can seemingly do anything, flies him back, and the only reason that moment was saved was because of the line that Gunn put in there for Star-Lord. Did that look cool? Did that look cool. <laughs> and it was, and it got, it, it got a holler out of me. So, Brandon, what do you think about that moment? And 
the deaths that we had in this film, did you find them uh, fitting for the character's ends? Well, I'll go through the three all but with Drax, I kind of thought they should with with Peter, I thought they kind of should, and with Rocket, I thought they kind of should, and it leads to a higher issue I have overall, which is that kill someone, and I'm not saying they. This isn't Vox Machina. This is not Vox <laughs> Machina. Okay, you and that is such a that is such a internal plot devices popcorn club joke. Okay, if you're not listening to our Vox Machina coverage, you better tune in. But I'm very sorry. <sighs> okay, back to you, Brandon. But that's a good point because I kind of had the t- I kind of had the same thought of like fake death. Like the, okay, you're you're doing it again. Um, but again, they do go through it a lot. Like obviously, Batch eighty nine are almost all dead. Sans rocket, the entirety of Counter Earth is dead. We haven't talked about that, but like Counter Earth, go boom. The family that helped them. Oh, thank you so much for letting us use they're your gone. car and holding. Yeah, gone. The two kids that were the three kids that we saw in the pictures. Okay, they're dead now. The yeah. little girl that got hit in the face by the ball by Drax, she's gone. Like, I know I made the point earlier of like, oh, I wish this had gone a bit more morbid, but like, that's pretty morbid. I'll give you that. Um, But even then, it's to the higher point of, I wish the movie had emphasized the finality of a, of this a bit more, of just realizing that, because yeah, I had the conversation with a friend of mine who was like, no, they want to keep them in for like Secret Wars and like all these other projects and like that. And they want to keep the idea of like the, the image of the former Guardians alive. They don't want to kill off the entire team, which is fair. You don't have to kill off the entire team. Just kill one. Like, Drax, you set up fairly well. Like, even in that Agoroscope sequence, it matter. It completely matters if he dies at that point. With Rocket, there's twice where you could have, either on the operating table or during the fight with the High Evolutionary. And Quill, my god, Quill. Quill should be dead and gone and floating in space. Not, that, not just my mixed opinions on Chris Pratt. I want to make that clear. Like, I actually think he's pretty good in this movie. But that scene between him floating out, the tendrils, the final shot of him seeing all of his friends on the platform, it's built to be a death. And then Warlock shows up and they have that stupid thing of him like floating through space and kind of thing. And I was like, you'd better have something great at the end of this. And they have that great thing with him reuniting and, you know, the, the comic. And it's fine. All that is lovely, but he should be dead. I'm sorry. What do they do with him? He he gets a final, I bet we were fun from Gamora. He says goodbye to his team and he goes back to Earth. How exciting. And by exciting, I mean how just okay of an ending to Star-Lord. You know how you solve that? You you pull, again, this would be a bit derivative, but you pull a Tony Stark in Endgame and you have him record a hollow message that you give to Gamora and the team and you have another one sent to his grandfather on Earth to be like, yes, this is what happened, yada, 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 big emotional ending. It has all the same narrative heft and he's still dead. And I'm sorry, it still pisses me off. Yeah, I... I was prepared for it. I was ready for it and it didn't happen. It's fine. I'll get over it. I'm happy my team's still together in my I, mind. I think just more pissing me off because it was Drax and then not Drax and then it's Rocket twice and then it's not Rocket. And I just kept thinking you could have that final emotional oomph that this movie is really building up towards. And for 90% of it, I really do think it works. It's just that last bit where I thought, you know, I'm not murder happy on all this, but like kill someone, darn it. I'm going to now knock one of Gunn's lines, and that is when Lila speaks to Rocket in sort of like this limbo, kind of like between worlds, um, living and dead. And she says, you know, there are the hands that guide us and the hands that guide the hands. I thought that was supposed to be deep, but I didn't get it. I, I heard it and I go, oh, I don't get it. Like, what? What do you think that means? If I had to guess, I think that's more of the idea of, you know, if there are the hands that made us, then that's the hands of 
you know, the creators, the people who are our biological, you know, normal is, family. Is that and what the then, line is? The hands that made us? There's the hands that made us and the hands that guide the hands. Is that not? Oh, okay. That's what, no, no, that's what it is. Now I'm with you. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. So it's the idea of like the people who are your quote unquote makers, who you think you owe you something to at certain points. And then there are the hands that like take you and guide you towards the place in your life. So whether that's batch 89, whether it's the guardians, whether it's the, whether it's the nowhere crew, like, I think that's the idea of it. Like you, you mean nothing to this guy. You owe him nothing. And even to us as your original family, you know, we've had our stuff, we've had our fun and you will always mean that, but you have people who are in the living world who care about. Thank you. That does give me a little bit more definition around that scene. Brandon, I will leave it to you to bring up some final arguments or (laughs) arguments like we've been going back and forth, but final remarks here for Guardians Volume 3. Uh, I guess in terms of the post-credit slash the actual ending, because we've talked so much about how Zaldana's not coming back, Batista's not coming back, Pratt's not coming back, but there is a Guardians team at the end. So I'm more wondering if you had to speculate where we could see some of those characters pop up, where could you see them and where, how would you want to see this cosmic side of the MCU taken? I... I don't see a like new Guardians of the Galaxy movie, but I do see emergences, emergences, I think that's the word, of these characters. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing Adam Warlock show up with, with Rocket and with Gru. It makes sense to keep those members there because I'm sure booking a voice from an actor is going to be a whole lot easier than trying to get them physically there. And when it comes to, Jupe Jupe, <laughs> the little girl. Did you notice how she just randomly had like these weird flares coming out of her fists? I said, okay. Is. Huh? Do you know why that is? No. So I, because I was wondering the same thing as you. I was like, why is the little girl here? Apparently, that's this movie's version of Phyla Vell, who becomes a version of Captain Marvel in the comics. What? Yeah. Huh? Like deep cosmic weirdness cut, but I didn't know about it. Yo. Okay. Well. Then we have two Captain Marvels on the team with Warlock and her. I, I'm so down to see uh, Kraglin continue his adventures, and especially with Cosmo alongside him. We didn't spend time on it, but Maria Bokolova, who is in Bodies, 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 uh, you've also might have seen her in Borat too, I believe. She voices Cosmo, the Russian, um, the cosmonaut, right? Like the one that was sent out to space, except this time she became a telekinetic dog. And she's she's great. There is a back and forth between her and Kraglin about her being called a bad dog and really resenting that. Uh, and I love it. If you're a dog person, I'm sure this will speak to you but i i would be so down for appearances of the guardians in our future big events but i don't think that it's necessary for us to dive into another guardians movie do you feel differently i agree i don't think we need a volume four if for no other reason than you know for whatever you want to say about the mcu this franchise specifically has been so specific that kind of like camaraderie and sense of community that he has built with these films. And I think that's really the thing that's going to make it last is that it is so singular and so distinct. I feel like he wouldn't give it to the wrong hands. I'm going to make another prediction. I think we see Rocket and Groot in a hologram in the Marvels. Please give me Rocket and Groot hollow. Like, just give me another evolution of that pairing. Uh, they, I, uh, yes, yes. As far as the Guardians go, maybe we don't get a full movie. Let's drop in Rocket and Groot in another adventure. I'm ready for them. Hell, I wouldn't mind if a couple of years you did, you know, Holiday Special 2 Electric Boogaloo with this cast. I wouldn't mind that. During our new series, um, Secret Wars, I'm ready for them to talk about the scrolls that are in space. And hey, we're tapping into Rocket and Groot mid-battle, uh, you know, 
communicating with Nick Fury of what the hell is even going on. I Have we yet to see Groot and Rocket interact with Fury? No, I don't think we have. Wow. I had two important questions that I threw at you right before we started recording today's episode. I wanted you to think about it because I know you care about music. And so my first question for you was when we look at the soundtracks that Gunn himself has put together for these films, volume one, two, and three, there are such popular rock anthems that he has included along with, um, you know, smaller tracks that are like hidden gems that I'm so happy he introduced larger audiences to collectively, sorry, not collectively, but individually, when we look at volume one, two, and three, Musically, where do they rank up for you? I had to rank the set. I think I still think one is the most iconic, and that's kind of my thing with the films too. I think one just barely edges out three, and then two, both in terms of the movie and the soundtracks. Um, as far as just standout cuts go, the fooled around and fell in love drop from the first movie with Star Lord just floating through space for the first time. Perfect. I'll take obviously hooked on a feeling. Um, I am cheating. I have all these up, by the way. Um, oh, I'm pulling I- them up too. I really like the cherry bomb needle drop from when they first suit up in the first movie. Um, going into volume two, um, there's too many needle drops in that movie. Um, I like, you know, Brandy obviously being narratively important is really fun. Um, Jay and the Americans come a little bit closer, which is the whole rocket and uh, Yondu sequence. Perfect. And then also, of course, father and son, which I still tear up watching that scene. I think it's a pretty fantastic number. And then finally, just in terms of volume three, I will go with Creep, as I mentioned. I will go with uh, In the Meantime by Space Hog. Oh, we didn't even mention. Brandon, is- we didn't talk about the end. We didn't We do didn't the talk end. about the end. Holy crap. Okay. Dog Days Are Over, which is a song that I don't think is top five Florence, just me personally. Now it might be top five Florence because, oh my God, it's one of the best needle drops I've seen in recent years. It's maybe the best ending of any individual MCU movie. I think it's fantastic. Brandon, I refuse to holster my finger gun weapon because did you just say that Dog Days Are Over is not Florence top five? Mind said, you, Florence is one of not. my top five, period. Okay, what occupies spots ahead of it then? Oh, God. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, how Big, How, beauti- how Big, How Beautiful, um, Ship to Wreck, Coriomania, maybe Cosmic Love. Um, did you like King? This is not a Florence in the Machine podcast, but let it be. It is now. Uh <laughs> King is not top five for me. Uh, it's maybe not even top ten. Um, Shake it out. Only a four a night. Delilah. Delilah. Delilah's number five. Oh, there you go. Delilah. Delilah, man. Okay. What a time to be alive, A. But B, <laughs> what a time <laughs> to be a Florence and the Machine fan. When this movie wrapped up <clears throat> and we have our heroes back at nowhere, all members of them, and we just feel this breath of relief coming off of all of our characters. They have fought their last battle together and they deserve a period of just relaxation, excitement, partying, fun. Yes. And pure love. I feel nothing else in that final scene. And to play Dog Days Are Over by Florence, I thought when I go into my discussion, and I'm going to go into my discussion now, <laughs> talking about the soundtracks completely, I think that one in three stand stand apart because of their their entrance songs as well as their send-offs uh i just listened recently again to ain't no mountain high no valley low and reminding myself of what star lord was facing when that song came on speaks to just all of the heart that just you felt in that first film and our 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 first song of part one is that ooga chaka that's that i think that track a volume one has as strong an opening as it does a finish and guardians two 
maybe I just didn't connect with it as deeply, but Guardians 3 does have, does have that similar effect. Um, starting out with creep and rapping with dog days are over though. Those two are volume one and volume three are right there. And volume two sits right below it. If one was ahead of it, of course it would be volume one. I'm so thankful for what gun is uh, introduced to us and just his, his ownership of his uh, music taste. Right. When we look at something like peacemaker as well. Um, And if, if we can go back to like James Gunn being a genius for a second, which I don't mean to overpraise the guy, but there's that line from yeah. early on where he's like, only idiots go to dance. Idiots go to dance at the very end. Finally, the question remains, Brandon, I asked you at the start of this, what, where this stands in terms of the MCU trilogies we've gotten so far. And without even thinking too hard, I know this is my favorite. I know this is the one that makes the most, most sense collaboratively. Um, and I might like eat my words later, <laughs> but I don't care. Right now, I'm speaking in the moment, and I really regard Guardians so high in the, in where they sit with Marvel. Um, although Captain America is a close second, I I'm not as in touch to that first film, and the third is so reliant on these additional characters. I understand why it's it's Civil War, but it was so pleasing to have this this Volume Three really hold really remain consistent with our expectations for guardians and not being let down. Um, I'm looking at you, Ammon and the wasp quantum mania. I'm looking at you. Oh, I almost dragged not no way home, but that's not this podcast. Brandon, let's talk about trilogies in the MCU and whether you want to compare it to a few, a couple or all of them, where did guardians sit with you? I mean, I'll drag no way home for a second. Um, <laughs> but no, as, as far as my trilogies go, like again, the captain America trilogy is so bloody fantastic. I think I might put that just slightly above if for only the reason that I love all of those movies. I deeply love all three of those movies. I love First Avenger, Winter Soldier, Civil War. I think they're all fantastic movies. But I think Guardians might have the slight edge in that Guardians movies are all consistent. Minus the Gamora thing, but I think you can walk around it. But other than that, every bit of the Guardians trilogy has... It even it probably wasn't laid out, but it feels laid out enough to where every arc makes sense. Every emotional beat feels rewarding. Every story beat feels like it's building on top of what came before it. And I really did feel like, you know, the Iron Man trilogy is kind of a similar way, but two and three have their flaws, in my opinion. Here, even if I don't like Guardians 2 very much, it's still a pretty good film. And one and three are absolutely terrific. So while I love all the Captain America movies dearly, I think this is the best pure trilogy, you know, take a whole day to watch it if you wanted to in 10 years. That has been our discussion on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. We have only one thing left to do, and that is provide you a ranking. So you are you might be hearing this in our full episode. Episode 50, by the way, let's celebrate. Woo! Here we go. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. From myself, it is going to be a strong... Eight and a half out of 10. I am so proud of what James Gunn has delivered to the big screen for our latest MCU edition. Uh, I love all of our characters and the journeys that they have um, endured up until this point and what lies ahead of them for this new film. We didn't go heavy into action, but this movie, while it, while it doesn't have the big, big bombastic end game action sequence, there's one at that, that they include at the end that is so stand out and so just cinematically pleasing, regardless of what was real and what was after effects. I'm like, I don't care. This looks cool. I love this. It looks new and I can't wait to, you know, watch this over and over. And they, 
they give it momentum. And I'm so thankful for a story that is the runtime that it has. It picked up and it moved. And I was right there with them from beat to beat. I found myself engaged and maybe it slowed down at once, but I couldn't even recall because it didn't even happen that long. Thankful for the characters, thankful for the music. And this holds itself to be one of the best trilogies, um, whether you want to look at it from the MCU angle or whether you want to just look at it at action adventure movies that um, have comedy, action, heart, so much heart. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Vol- Volume 3, eight and a half for me. I heard a, lo- a couple of critics who I really admire say that they didn't love this movie or really even like this movie. And that got me worried going into it. For all of its flaws, and I do think there are some flaws, it doesn't, I think, overly commit to some of its best elements. Some of the needle drops I did find a little bit annoying. You know, some of the narrative stuff, as I said, does drag a little bit with the, hey, do jokes. This is going to be a funny movie. Guardians 3 does so, so much right as we have, you know, gone in this review about the characters are almost all fleshed out. The performances are terrific. We didn't talk about the visuals as well. In an era when the MCU is being dragged for a lot of its visual storytelling, I found the visuals pretty flawless here. Did you find Victoria's name on this? I was looking for it. I didn't see it. She is credited. She's credited. Okay. I was curious. Go on. But no, the visuals are flawless, but you're right. It's the story. It's the emotion. It's the heart. It's the grim and morbid story material that we try and really take the trust of the audience to the next level of how far can we push this? How much can we really grip you with these characters that 10 years ago were viewed as outcasts, nobodies, you know, they're Z-tier comics characters. Who the hell wants to see a movie about a raccoon in a tree? And now we're at a point where all of us nearly cried for them. I know I certainly got fairly close. And I know a lot of people did as well. For me, this is a 9 out of 10. I think this is truly fantastic filmmaking. I think this movie also made me click for why he's leading DC and specifically going to Superman. He knows the idea of what it's like to be someone who isn't in the limelight, who desperately is trying to find a place, who is trying to do the right thing in the midst of a world that is not. And that's Superman. That's a lot of DC characters. And that's a lot of like our big superhero icons. And to take those ideas and put them to something like Guardians and give us arcs for Rocket trying to find some semblance of closure in his world to someone like Peter trying to find any sense of like love and, you know, um, communal connection to someone like Nebula, who's just trying to find her identity and characters like that. I think we need more movies like this, frankly, in the MCU that don't just try and go on pure bombast. And this does have a lot of it, but it's not relying on just that. It's relying on emotion and heart and a mix of all the great things that make for really exciting blockbuster cinema. And in a year like this, where we've already gotten some pretty great blockbusters, this is topping it so far. Um, and yeah, I just was really impressed by it. I highly encourage you all to check it out. I'm sure many of you have. Yeah, I wouldn't let any of the stuff dissuade you. I would sincerely go check it out. And that'll do it for our spoiler extravaganza for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, while we've got you here, Twitter, Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod, TikTok, at Plot Devices Podcast. Go check out the show, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed. You can follow us there and leave a review. It does help boost the algorithm. We would like to get this community to uh, more audiences and and let you guys love this as much as we love making it. Uh, Of course, my co-host Noah Guzman and I are here. Our social medias will be linked in the description as well if you want to go check us out. For that being said, for the spoiler review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, again, Noah Guzman, myself, Plot Devices. Go check out Episode 50 when it comes. It's going to be out of this world.